millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, journalist and writer Susan McKay has for many years been considered one of the more nuanced and perceptive voices on Northern Ireland, its culture and politics. 20 years ago, she wrote a book, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, which was based around interviews with Protestants from all different walks of life in the North. Now, she has a new book on the shelves, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. And again, she takes the temperature right across the still majority tradition in the North. Susan Ah, you're very welcome to the podcast. And the first thing to say is, I notice your book is doing very well in the bestseller list in the South, in the Republic, which gives light to the notion that's often floated that there isn't much interest down here about Northern affairs. Yeah, it's really interesting, Mick, that that should have happened. I was surprised by it, I must say. Um, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground went straight in at number two in Hodges Figgis in Dublin's uh, bestsellers for the, on the week that it came out. And it has, it has stayed there for the few weeks in the, the intervening time. And yeah, I mean, both of us have worked in newspapers where you often have that experience of kind of mentioning a Northern story and seeing everybody's eyes, including the editors, glaze over. You know, there, there has been a view that um, Northern Irish stories just were not of interest in the Republic. But it's actually a very good sign, I think, that uh, that clearly they are. Because I think that really... There's people tend to think about, you know, questions of Irish unity and so on as if it was only something about the North, but it isn't. It's about the whole of Ireland. And um, everybody is going to have to think more about the whole of Ireland um, in the future because things are pretty chaotic in the North. And I don't really think that the Northern state is going to last all that much longer. It simply can't. Yeah, that's interesting, Susan, actually, that you say that. Let me ask you, do you see that as momentum? towards a united Ireland or is there some other arrangement that could emerge from it? I mean, the whole thing is is pretty much up in the air. It's completely fluid at the moment and and volatile and it's not a nice time in the North. There's a, there's a bit of a bad feeling about, you know, there's a feeling that people people who are trying to be progressive in the North are struggling at the moment. You know, there's a kind of an undertow of people there who just want to go back to the past and who really think that that's a possible project, uh, particularly on the loyalist side at the moment. I mean, there's an element of it with dissident republicanism, but the one that we're seeing coming to the fore at the moment is um, dissident loyalism, really. And unfortunately, it's getting a bit of support from mainstream political unionism, which is most disturbing, and indeed some elements of the media. I mean, I just can't count the times when I've turned on BBC Radio Ulster and heard spokespersons from the Loyalist Communities Council, which is a hitherto practically unknown all-male organisation of completely unelected people who suddenly are being presented as if they represent, you know, the voice that must be taken into account when any political decisions are being taken. But I think there's a general sort of sense among people in the North that I pick up that... um, 
you know, the executive at Stormont is just one crisis after another. You know, we only got the institutions up and running again after a full three years collapse in 2020. And now it looks like they're on the verge of collapse again. And, you know, in the meantime, they haven't actually achieved a great deal because so much time is just spent on, you know, power battles and, you know, divvying up of things and decisions being taken behind closed doors. And, you know, the people travel all over the world talking about the Good Friday Agreement and its great successes and things. But when you see it in action, it's a bit pitiful, really. And I think if the institutions collapse again now, there will be a, you know, it's it's going to be seriously um, disillusioning for people. And the problem is that if our only alternative is Boris Johnson's um, British government as in direct rule, you know, via direct rule, I mean, um, that's troubling, isn't it? Because, you know, we know that before, even before the Brexit vote, 59% of English Tories said that they would rather achieve Brexit than be bothered about holding on to either Northern Ireland or Scotland. So, you know, the English nationalists who are behind Brexit don't care about the union. The union seems to be the only thing that matters to Northern Unionists. So where does that leave us? And I do think that increasingly people are thinking, well, you know, maybe a united Ireland might not be that bad. You know, even people who wouldn't be enthusiastic proponents of it. Yeah, and when you say that people, Susan, I, I'm guessing perhaps you, you're talking about principally people who'd be from the Protestant or Unionist tradition and, and just in a similar vein the whole thing around the DUP like you know there has long been a perception certainly in the South that they are representative of uh, a, a majority voice within the Protestant tradition that doesn't really seem to be the case anymore notwithstanding the, their current electoral strength but I get the impression that a lot of people are drifting away from them. The thing that you have to understand about northern politics is it is still very sort of ethnic, really. You know, Catholics and nationalists will vote for the Catholic or nationalist party that will that has a good chance of winning. And Protestants and unionists will vote for the unionist party that has a good chance of winning. So the DUP, for example, is way out of step with its own electorate in terms of, say, social issues. And, and you know, polls show that. Um, even the Brexit poll showed that. But people still continue to vote for the DUP because they are pro-union. They want to stay in the United Kingdom. So they vote for the Unionist Party because it isn't Sinn Féin, which is the party that tends to win the most, that is currently winning the most votes among the other side, as unfortunately more and more people have started referring to it. Because the North is actually going into a very sectarian mode at the moment. Um, but yeah, they, I mean, the, the DUP, uh, on the strength of the last opinion poll, is only looking at 16% of the vote. Sinn Féin, on the other hand, is looking at 25%. And I think in your introduction, you referred to the majority unionist community. But the the fact is, in 2011, when the last census was done in Northern Ireland, um it was only in the over 60s that there continued to be a significant majority of Protestants. And among school age children um, already, uh, there was a majority of Catholics. Now, in 2011, the poll, the, that was what the poll said. A poll was just taken this year and the results will be out next year. And it is likely to show that that trend has continued, which means that more and more 
we're looking at a Catholic majority among the, you know, the voting age public. And um, we're probably going to be looking at a first minister who's from Sinn Féin. Um, and the DUP is in no way um, emotionally, intellectually, imaginatively or politically ready for that. Um, so it's going to be a bit of a rocky road, I think, when that happens. However, that said, they do appear to be willing to plunge us back into an assembly election again. Yeah, and when you say that, Susan, like the, the, that prospect is that at one stage, I think it was, it was sort of in a derogative sense described as count the Catholics or whatever. But as you say, it does seem that uh, that shifting ground is there. But what I'm wondering is, within that context, the prospect of the Catholic tradition, to put it that way, being in a majority, if we have to define it that way, will that, in your opinion, compel people from the unionist tradition who might otherwise not vote for the DUP to do so out of fear or something? Is that fear still there in terms of where Northern Ireland could go? Well, that's the calculation that the DUP is making, and it's always been the calculation that um, the DUP makes, and it used to be the calculation that the Ulster Unionist Party took when it was the largest party, uh, stirring up sectarian fear of the other the other side when it comes to elections, so that people will huddle together in the, the PUL community, as it's hatefully called, um, Protestant Unionist Loyalist. I, I really dislike those kind of ethnic terms, but um, that is what they calculate, is that whatever people think about the DUP, they'll vote for it because of fear that otherwise Sinn Féin will win. But they see they are going against the tide in that because demographically they're going against the tide um, for the reasons I just explained. But also politically, I really do think that people are just... The negativity which is emanating from the DUP is increasingly at odds with particularly what younger Protestants think you know young younger there's a there's a really quite inspiring younger generation of people in the north who aren't a bit concerned about whether their friends are catholics protestants muslims or others or atheists or whatever you know they're just actually interested in making a good life in northern ireland they may or may not have views on the constitutional question but there has been a modernisation of Northern Irish society, which is very, very poorly served by the kind of 17th century vigilant watch-your-back politics that the DUP uh, represents. The thing is that there are now other options for people um, in the North. You know, if you're pro-union, you can vote for the Alliance Party because although it designates as other, meaning that it's neither, it's not, it's not nationalist, it's not unionists, it's other. So there are some people in there who believe in a united Ireland. There are some people in there who are who are pro union. There are some people who don't take a position at all on those issues. But you can vote for alliance, which is socially progressive and is is led by a very forward thinking person in Naomi Long, or you can go for the Greens. You can go for people before profit. Um, increasingly, I think people are quite hopeful about the direction that Doug Beatty is going to take the Ulster Unionist Party in. So there are options for people. It's going to be challenging for Doug Beatty if he's, try he's trying to modernise the Ulster Unionist Party, but there will be pressure on unionists to unite if there's going to be an election. 
And indeed, even there's going to be a test of that when uh, Jeffrey Donaldson's seat uh, at Westminster comes up, if as expected, he becomes leader of the um, DUP. He has said that he would be first minister if he became the leader of the DUP. So that means that he is currently an MP. If he gives up his seat, there will be a battle for his seat uh, that constituency, it did vote 65% or 60%, I can't remember which, for pro-unionist last time around. But there will be, uh, the DUP will be certainly trying to get the other unionist parties to go into alliance with it, you know, to have some sort of a voting pact. But if Doug Beatty is really genuinely trying to include in his party... Uh, people who are pro-choice, people who believe in uh, same-sex marriage, people who behave, believe in a whole set of, of socially progressive um, directions. It's going to be hard for him to persuade them that there is anything to be um, recommended in joining forces with a party that still regards gayness as an abomination and is completely opposed to abortion in most circumstances and quite recently voted um, against a ban for uh, gay conversion therapy. You know, that's not that's not the UUP that they think they, they have joined up to. Yeah, it does... Uh... Voting against abandoned gay conversion therapy, got a you know, some of it makes you wonder. One thing I'm curious about that middle ground, and you referenced it there, Susan. And there a few months ago on the Clare Burn program one night, Narty Andrew Trimble, the rugby player, was on, and he was somebody very much advocating for that and suggesting that it represented particularly among younger people a growing constituency. But is there a class element to that? Like, for instance, those who would graduate towards perhaps the Alliance Party as opposed to the traditional parties of one side or the other. Is that a more middle class thing or is it something that's happening right across society? No, it's not a more middle class thing. I think that's one of the myths that, you know, I think the Republic yeah. has been slow to catch up with what has happened to the Alliance Party. Um, Naomi Long is the leader of the Alliance Party. She's a feisty, tough, working class woman from a loyalist community. She knows what uh, working class Protestants want and need just as well as the DUP does. And uh, her party is, it used to be like, say, in the 1980s or 90s that the Alliance Party was was regarded as the nice party that people pretended they voted for if they wanted everybody to think that they were nice people when they privately went off and voted for a more hardline unionist party. But um, nowadays it isn't like that. And I actually feel that that class thing is not really that much of an element in, um, you know, progressive politics in the North. It's true that... Um, I mean, I suppose fundamentally one of the things that you have to understand is that people make the mistake of thinking that sectarianism emanates from the working class loyalist community, but it doesn't. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the Northern State 100 years ago, it was Lord Brookborough, you know, who was Prime Minister for 20 full undisturbed years until 1963, who said that um, Protestants shouldn't employ Catholics because 99% of them were disloyal. You know, it was 1975 when Edwin Poots's father, who was uh, one of the grandees of the DUP, um, said that um, he recommended the shutting off of Catholic areas and cutting off their electricity and not allowing them their, so their benefits and so on, you know, because they were enemies of the state. So sectarianism in the North actually comes from the top. 
um, although it mostly has, I suppose, in, in during the Troubles, was seen to manifest itself most through the growth of the loyalist paramilitaries within working class communities. But I think you can see that as a kind of extension of the cannon fodder uh, argument, you know, that people people who were involved in loyalist paramilitarism during the Troubles would, many of them would now say that they feel that they were used, you know. Absolutely. And you can see it's the same old thing with war, for instance, the whole thing is sending the cannon father out to young kids who have to join up and what have you. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. In terms of just bookending, to put it that way, your two books, Susan, um, the first one was in the wake of uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, around around that time. There was going to be a new dispensation there, etc. Now, as you say, you say yourself, perhaps they're in the shadow of moving to constitutional change. Do you sense among a cross-section of the kind of people you're interviewing a change in attitude towards the South between those two parts of history? Young people now who are... Well, no, let me start that again, because I, I I don't like that thing of sort of presuming that everybody who's progressive is young. Because in oh, fact, well, one, <laughs> because one of the interesting things in the North is that there's particularly like there's a generation of, of young people who've been brought up by feminists, for example, you know, uh, who've been influenced by their feminist mothers in particular, you know, so uh, they've they've not uh, they've not come out of nowhere. But um, there are people who want the North to change um, and who begin to despair of what's going on at Stormont and the constant stop, start, stop, start. They do look to the Republic and think, well, it's not the way it used to be. It used to be a kind of a very dominated by the Catholic Church kind of a state. But now it has uh, same-sex marriage and it has abortion rights. And I think a lot of people look at that and think, well, those things were achieved not by the politicians, but by the people through progressive social movements. So I think that gives people a lot of hope in the North that politics isn't actually the be-all and end-all, that although it would be very desirable to have politicians who uh, represented the desires of the people, there are other ways of bringing about change, peaceful ways of bringing about change. And I think that's why a lot of people are getting really irked by this whole thing of just constantly highlighting threats of violence from a very, very small minority. There's a much bigger group of people um, who are absolutely appalled at the prospect of violence. And that's right across the board, including um, people in the Protestant community that I spoke to. I mean, my sense was obviously most people from the unionist community would rather remain in the union but I think that there are a growing number of people who are willing to contemplate uh, the prospect that some form of unification mightn't be the end of the world. Yeah, that's interesting. And in that vein, the big thing at the moment, and certainly looking from the outside, and that's even internationally, and we saw it last week at the uh, G7 uh, gathering in the UK, and everything is about the protocol. And, the, you know, the protocol is the big thing in Boris Johnson giving the impression, as they say, he'll go to the trenches uh, to, to, to get rid of the protocol or whatever. But is that something, in your opinion, that is affecting the lives of people there? Or has it become a political issue blown out of proportion in terms of everyday life in the North? I think that people, um, Protestants in the North, don't like the fact that there's a border in the Irish Sea. It makes people uneasy. But... Um, 
56% of people in the North voted against Brexit. They wanted to remain in the EU. And a lot of those people um, and others now, I think, feel, look, we didn't necessarily want Brexit. It ha- the DUP blew it. They they pushed and pushed and pushed for a harder and harder Brexit and they ended up that the only option was to have a border in the sea and that's what they've now got and they're now trying to blame everybody else for that. But they're not furious about it in a constant way in the way that um, the DUP would have you believe. Um, in fact, a majority of business organisations, uh, including obviously people from the Protestant community, are saying, look, let's just get on with this now. You know, what business hates is uncertainty. Um, What we need now is to be able to plan, try and make this work for us. And we are hearing reports that there's quite a lot of um, interest in Northern Ireland because of the fact that it does have this kind of hybrid status as being, you know, part EU, part British. So, you know, people are interested in exploring the advantages of that. They don't want to get involved in another renegotiation of Brexit. And I think anybody who looks realistically at the protocol realises that that is what would be involved. The DUP comes up with these slogans like ditch Brexit, but it isn't that simple. You know, it's got something like, I don't know, 167 clauses or something in it. You know, it's a it's a massive thing. Every single bit of it is required um, to be renegotiated if it comes to that. You know, there isn't an easy answer to this and the DUP is very strikingly um, only ever against things. It doesn't seem to come up with good ideas as to how they might actually be, be solved. Yeah, and another thing that strikes me as well is, and and again, you've seen this with some of the coverage recently, particularly in perhaps more working class areas of the unionist tradition, and that is that there's a sense you get in these it's a lot of these places, or at least there's an expression of it, that uh, they feel that uh, the changes that have come about the last 20 plus years, that they are now the ones who are effectively oppressed when it comes to issues like employment, proper services, that type of thing. You definitely get the impression that that's going around. I mean, is that just a political tool? Is there any truth to it, do you think? Um, there's no evidence whatsoever for that. Um, and I think it's what the, there's a, a woman that I interviewed in my book called Eileen Weir, who runs, um, she doesn't run it, but she's a, a worker in the um, Shankill Women's Centre in, in West Belfast, really sort of traditional working class loyalist area with all the social problems that... Um, you would expect to go with that. But she would say that she came up with a term called community propaganda. She said that, you know, when the riots happened in April, she said the community propaganda is there that's saying this is about two-tier policing, this is that Catholics are getting everything now and we're getting nothing. And what there is in the North is evidence of a lot of deprivation. There's a lot of disadvantage. There's a lot of... um, problems in working class areas. Um, But they're not because of Catholics getting everything. They're because nobody in the working class is really getting enough to to make those communities thrive. And the two-tier policing thing seems to be entirely based on what happened around the Bobby Story funeral. And, you know, everybody can see that that shouldn't have happened and that Sinn Féin behaved incredibly stupidly and incredibly badly over that. Um, and it did rankle with people, but it was one incident and uh, it does not in any, there is no, there's a policing board in the north, 
you know, which the DUP sits on along with all the other political parties. You know, there's police oversight. Um, there's a uh, there's a chief constable who obviously doesn't have a good grasp of the realities on the ground in Northern Ireland, but that plays across the whole community and not just the the Protestant community. But um, no, I don't. I don't think that. Um, I think that's all coming from a few sources. You know, I mean that that's the narrative that the DUP is promoting in order to get this kind of. The, your problems are all because the other side is getting everything story rather than your problems have come about because we're not very good at politics, you know. I mean, I think, yeah. and the other thing that I do really feel is that the Irish language thing, which has now been blown up into being as big an issue as the protocol practically, um, there's no rational explanation for that. And therefore, I think the only explanation that you can find is that it's straightforward sectarianism. It's the equivalent of um, what the parades were during the 1990s, during the Drum Cree year. You know, those Catholics are telling us we can't walk down the Queen's Highway, so we are going to walk down the Queen's Highway. You know, um, those Catholics want their language act. Well, they're not getting it because we can stop them. You know, it's it's as yeah. basic as that. It's the we will not bend the knee. We will not do Sinn Féin's bidding. But the thing about the Irish language is I think a lot of people see it as being a test of whether unionists are really willing to um, show respect to the nationalist community and share power with the nationalist community. They're see, it's seen as being as simple as that. And that goes right back to things like the Arlene Foster's crocodiles comment where she talked about, you know, you, keep, you feed a crocodile, it keeps coming back for more, which again is an old sectarian trope, you know, the insatiability of the other side. They'll take and take and take. And then you'd Gregory Campbell MP talking about if there was an Irish language act, he would use it as toilet paper, you know. So it has become a thing which is about, you know, this is a test of does unionism actually intend to share power as envisaged in the Good Friday Agreement? Or does it just intend to sign up to things like the Irish language uh, legislation over and over again, but never actually implement them? Yeah, and the thing that strikes me, Susan, you mentioned it there and it comes across in the book as well, areas you went into where there's a lot of deprivation. Isn't that the great failure of the Good Friday Agreement? I mean, it, there was such goodwill, there were such prospects, there were such possibilities there that ultimately in the areas that there was huge deprivation uh, has that much changed? And I suppose that probably maybe due to a lack of organisation whatever applies more on the, on the unionist side perhaps than the nationalist side. I don't know, you'd know that better. Well, there's a whole lot of elements to it, obviously, but um, a lot of it has to do with the fact, I think, that the um, the one of the biggest projects of the Good Friday Agreement was meant to be reconciliation. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of what's wrong with the North is the fact that that has not been taken seriously as a project. You know, it's been regarded as the kind of soft stuff that will look after itself. But like, there's still only 7% of, of children in the North who are educated and integrated schools you know and there's still and, and that was meant to be part of the Good Friday Agreement That and people are still in working class areas certainly mostly living in, in segregated housing areas and so on so you've got a community which is still divided and that's clearly not 
uh, going to work in the best interests of the people um, from and then you get the sectarian thing of you know oh that the other side is getting everything we're getting nothing which you're getting from unionists at the moment I f- it was very depressing to hear um, Billy Hutchinson the other day coming out with that old thing you know that the other side is getting everything and it just isn't true and there isn't any empirical evidence to be produced for it yeah, and the other element that the DUP are, are those like-minded to those on the front line anyway is in recent years they've introduced a sort of a culture war sort of a syndrome not dissimilar to what we've seen in parts of America in particular. And do, do they see this really as advancing their cause or is it just something instinctively they're drawn to anyway? Well, it's a minority. It is really is a minority. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the riots in April, and if you look at the anti betrayal act uh, rallies that took place uh, before the last Westminster election, and if you look at those rallies that are going, the anti protocol rallies that are going on at the moment. I mean, I went to the one in Portadown because I had a strong suspicion that this talk of a huge generation of young people who were willing to get up in arms on behalf of, of God and Ulster was a myth. And I I now am more convinced than ever that that is a myth because the people that I saw at that demo in Portadown were mostly old Drumcree heads, you know. <laughs> they recognised me from Drumcree days and I recognised <laughs> them from Drumcree days, despite the fact that we were wearing masks, you know. I mean, I think the the one really good thing that has happened in terms of the potential of getting through this sectarian period in the North is the fact that Trump was defeated in the last in the American election uh, because he was giving succor to that whole um, us and them narrative that, you know, the racist dynamic in yeah. the States is the same in many ways as the sectarian dynamic in the North. Once you start going back into the basics of it, and um, of course, the the harder core elements of um, the TUV and the DUP um, were very pro-Trump. You know, they 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 saw him as a kind of a hero. Uh, they regard Biden as being a a poodle for Irish republicanism. You know, whereas Trump was this eagle soaring above us all. You know, but um, so that is a good thing. The fact that there's no longer that. Um, horrible, horrible, divisive narrative coming from the US and, uh, le- you know, lending its support. And in your opinion, Susan, like every, everybody says, and there's, you know, and it makes perfect sense that Brexit has brought closer the day of a united Ireland. But on top of that, is it your view that the, the way in which particularly the DUP is handling the current political situation brings it even closer again. I believe so, but um, I believe it is because the DUP is not offering any kind of notion of what it wants for Northern Ireland. It's completely focusing on the negative at the moment, what it will not tolerate, what it will endeavour to block, what it will stop. You know, it's not sort of going to you know, people in somewhere like Newton Ards and the housing estates in Newton Ards, it's not going and saying, look, we're going to make sure that we get you a factory here because you're being disadvantaged. We're going to make sure that we get you a big school here. It's not going and saying that. It's it's going and giving a completely sort of divisive uh, message to people. But I must say, like in relation to the United Ireland um, debate, um, it's pretty depressing, I think, that the southern 
government couldn't have even seen its way to giving two measly Senate seats to Northerners. You know, like <laughs> it wouldn't have taken much for uh, the the um, for the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to to let a Northerner into one of those Senate seats recently that came up and and before that as well. I mean, there have been several recent opportunities and they've just ignored that, you know, so it's not as if they're not exactly extending uh, much of a welcome. You know, they're not exactly saying, look, we're ready to radically transform this place. You know, you want an NHS, we'll, we'll provide an NHS. You know. Oh, abs- absolutely. And I see parallels there, to be honest with you, in terms of uh, the approach to climate change in some ways, because it's basically, oh, yeah, it's off there in the future. We'll deal with it at some stage, but it's too much hassle to think about it now. And the point you make, I mean, exactly 2020 or four years after Brexit, everything has moved on. A couple of Senate seats on the most basic level to introduce northern voices in the legislature down here. And it would have been pretty basic and they couldn't even rise to that. Yeah, and there were some really good northern candidates who made it very clear that they were they were there and willing to to um to be part of it and it just would have made a difference. It would just would have showed some sort of an awareness that the republic is going to have to play its part in this, you know, and the controversy over Leo Varadkar's uh very anodyne comment about the hoping to see uh uh, United Ireland in his in his lifetime. I mean, he's said that before. It's not exactly a proposal as to how we might lay out the welcoming. He's, a, he's only forty. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not. There's there's definitely a lot of um, there's an absence of recognition in the Republic that there's that it has any kind of responsibilities towards the North. And do you think? And you mentioned this at the start as well. Um, in, in terms of the general population in the Republic, I mean, is there any recognition or understanding of what would be involved or is everything down to that old primal urge that uh, a nation once again, you know, on, on whatever level, and you're coming from very different traditions there right across the spectrum of this thing unifying the Ireland without delving into what exactly that will mean? Yeah, there's no debate going on here about a united Ireland um, there are attempts mostly coming from people based in the north to uh, to try to start such a debate. But there's no sign of it sort of arising as being a sort of an issue that people regard as being in any way central or important. And until that starts, you know, I mean, you get you get the DUP using language like the predatory republic. You know, the republic needs to refute that by being generous rather than... Uh, anything else, you know, it needs to be saying, um, you know, this is what we would have to offer. Or this is what might might happen. I mean, there's been talk about there's been a little bit of talk about the possibility of citizens assemblies, which worked in terms of other big political change that happened in the Republic. But um, there's not been any sort of attempt to really explore that. There seems to be a fear of talking about the North, you know, as if if you talk about it, it might come down here and it might scare us all or we might have to listen to Sammy Wilson, you know. That would scare me anyway. <laughs> no, is there anything in it, Susan? Is there anything in it that it's obviously a central tenet of Sinn Féin philosophy and always has been and therefore perhaps the other main parties 
do they view it through that lens in their own way, wondering does it seed ground to Sinn Féin if they go down that route? Is, is, is there anything in that? I think it challenges the paradox at the heart of the attitude of the establishment parties and the other establishment parties, I should say, in the Republic towards Sinn Féin is because they they have this thing that it's what's needed in the North. You know, we have to support the fact that there's power sharing between Sinn Féin and the other parties in the North, but we couldn't have them down here because they're bad. You know, and that all comes a cropper when you start looking at the notion of, of Irish unity because you cannot then say, well, it's fine to have Sinn Féin in the North, but it isn't fine to have Sinn Féin in power here, you know, because it, it, it just isn't, the, the two notions cancel each other out. So I think there's a huge sort of, um, you know, the Republic still has to move on from the 1920s really in a, in a way in in that regard in relation to to republicanism you know it's a it's a political force and if you want to take it on you're going to have to take it on in an all island capacity and on political grounds and not just on appealing to sort of old notions you know and of course i mean the, i'm not an expert in any way on Sinn Féin but i do think they've got challenges as well you know, because they've been protected from having to uh, compromise on their politics in the Republic in many ways, whereas in the North they've had to do things like signing up to British Tory austerity politics and, and so on and in certain ways. You know, so it's got challenges for everybody, not just unionism, but just not talking about it isn't going to make it go away. I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be one of the big stories of the next decade. There's no question about that. And there's going to have to be a lot more talking. The book is called Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. It's now available in bookshops and online. And as with all of Susan's work, it's well worth a read for its insight into what a significant minority in this island are thinking and feeling about their current station. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Mick. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again soon, folks. That's it for this week.